I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Bulwark. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Episode number 80. And this was not something that we could quickly put together for y'all today, Mark LaCour. <laughs> yeah, we're actually recording this a day late because we had technical issues yesterday. And then this morning we had reboots. Oh man, this is good times. Yeah. Um, and, and today we also had um, uh, ID10T errors. <laughs> Do you know what that is, James? I have no clue what that is. So if you write down ID10T, what does that look like, you think? Idiot? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, because Mark, if you don't know, which you wouldn't, um, Mark has a tendency to quit all of his windows at once and just stop the recording in the middle of it. You would think after all this time I would know not to do that. But, yeah, that ID10T, by the way, is something a help desk guy taught me years ago. <laughs> Internally, when, when somebody would do something silly and they had to call help desk, they would write down ID10T so all the techie guys could laugh at them. Well, now that we're scaling out OGGN, Oil and Gas Global Network, we'll have to keep that one around for the help desk. Yeah, speaking of that, A, we have a new podcast, uh, Oil and Gas HSE podcast. It's on the Oil and Gas Global Network. Go check it out. Yeah, go check it out, oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. We're growing, we're growing and growing. We're at episode number 80, and we're actually growing and going to another, um, I guess you could say live in a certain sense, although it'll be you know recorded by the time most people hear it. But if you want to hear it live, you can come and, and see us because we're going to be at the TIBCO Energy Forum, right? Yep. Uh, James and I, and uh, actually Patrick as well, will all be there. Um, we're, we'll be recording podcasts live from the event. We'll also be participating in the event. Um, if you're in the oil and gas industry and you don't understand big data and analytics, you need to come check the show out. So TIPCO is the leader in that in oil and gas. And they do a really good job. And in this low crude price environment, it drives cost savings, increases production. And they're a great group, great group of people. So um, come check us out September 7th and 8th right here in Houston. And so if anybody's a new listener, can you tell us who the heck is Patrick? No, <laughs> yeah, that's true. So Patrick Pister is my co-host on the Oil and Gas HS&E podcast. Like James says, we're growing. Our family is growing. We have new people and new podcasts coming in, uh, and we have events, and it's just it's good stuff. It's good stuff, and 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 someday we're going to fulfill all of my dreams that we were talking about before the show, right, Mark? Yep, we're going to do it. <laughs> we're going to do it. We're going to have the Sports Center of Oil and Gas. Give us a few years, maybe ten. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I bet, I bet we get there in the next couple of years. It won't be ten. We're, we're just the the. The growth uh, curve is just really steep for what we're doing, but it's it's steep because we're putting out good, useful content for our audience, which is who's listening to us right now. So without our audience, we could never do any of this. So thank you for listening. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening. Everybody loves the first Friday Q&A because everybody keeps telling us they love it. And we have a host of fantastic questions. Once again, Mark, are you are you ready? Are you ready to be in the hot seat, my friend? Yeah, let's do this. Let's do this thing. Okay. Let's kick it off with Nick Roberts. He is from LEC Services, and here is what Nick would like to know. First, I wanted to say I'm a big fan of the show, and I think what you guys have been doing for the oil and gas industry is great. My question is, what do you guys think about the United States' ability to become oil independent and placing restrictions on oil imported oil? Is it a practical and is it a practical solution? And how do you think prices at the pump would respond? Yeah, so it's a great question, Nick. Um, it's something that we we get a lot, and there's been a lot of discussion about, but it doesn't actually work that way. Uh, what happens in the U.S. There, and, and what happens globally is there's different weights and grades of crude. And when you build a refinery, you build it for a certain weight and grade of crude. 
here in the U.S., we're, we're most of our refiners are set up to process heavy crude. So crude from Canada, the Middle East. Um, but the crude that we're producing in the U.S. is light, sweet crude, right, which we have a hard time refining. So we're having to blend it in the pipe. So we're actually just about energy independent now. What you have to understand is that means that we import oil that works better for our refineries, and then we sell oil globally that's better for other people's refineries. So um, we're, we're, we're just about there. If you look at the total amount of production versus what we're using, we're, we're producing as much as we use. We just trade it globally um, in the free market, which is, which is the best way to keep pump prices low. If we put some restrictions, if the government stepped in, and every time the government steps in, especially in the oil and gas industry, <laughs> it, adds, it adds cost. Um, pump prices would go up and not just pump prices, but everything that you touch goes up. Think about when you go to the grocery store, everything in that store is hauled there by a truck. That truck requires fuel. Um, so, you know, when you start increasing the price of fuel, you increase the price of transportation and then you increase the price of, you know, foods and drugs and, and, and just everything else. So the way we have it done now is good and we need less government intervention, not more. But good question. Less, not more. To follow up on that, though, because if if um if I'm a, if I'm new to the to the show or to the industry in general, I might be thinking, well, why are our refiners set up that way? Why did why are refineries in in America not set up to to? Is it because they used to get that other stuff from the ground and then we stopped? Well, it's it's technology. So our refineries historically we've never produced as much as we've used. We've always imported, and so we imported mainly from the Middle East because it was cheaper and that's heavy oil. So our refineries are set up to process that. And changing a refinery is not like changing a light switch. Changing the way a refinery works is huge. You got to basically rebuild the refinery. So um, it, just, it, it was just set up like that for historical reasons. And from a cost point of view, um, especially if you, know, you, you, you're, you, know, you live in the U.S. and work in the U.S., you want it to stay that way. You don't, if, if you know, that Chevron Pasigula refinery needs to retrofit to, to process light crude, you're going to pay for that. And that's, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, which will be passed on to uh, the, the fuel buyers and, and you know, and should pass on eventually to consumers. So it's a historical reason. Uh, we didn't see the shale revolution coming. No, nobody did. The shale? Um, and, did you mean shale? Yeah, the shale revolution. <laughs> so, so that's why. So this has been an interesting development for me. You know, I'm, I'm on this tear listening to all these audiobooks about oil. So I just listened to John D. Rockefeller Sr.'s, uh, Ron Chernow, um, Titan is, the, is what it's called. But then I went into The Big Rich, which is the story of the big four oil families from Texas. It's been fascinating and educating to me to think about the fact that, and it's, I guess it's something that I sort of knew, but at one time... We produced all of the oil in the world, you know. I mean, at one time we literally did because no, we, it wasn't until the technology came and spread to the Middle East and so forth. So, what are you talk us through that a little bit too? No, so you're absolutely right. Historically, we were the major oil producer, and guess what, James? Because of technology, we're getting ready to be the major oil producer again, um, and, and it, it's a good thing. Um, and you know, a lot of I get a lot of questions about running out of oil, and what people don't understand is we're not ever going to run out of oil. It's, it's you know, it, it puzzles me in some ways um, because you never hear people talk about running out of iron, right, or sand. We make glass from sand. Nobody ever worries about running out of sand to make glass, but they worry about running out of oil. Um, and and you know, we're in a hydrocarbon abundant world. We'll continue to be in a hydrocarbon abundant world as new technologies come on. It'll be more cost effective to get hydrocarbons out of the ground. Um, you know, and like I said, we're we're getting ready to be the major producer in the world again. So it's good stuff. 
Yeah. And, and, and if you don't like oil, if you're one of the people that, that happened upon the show and you're, you're going, I don't, I'm not so sure about this industry. If you like the fact that we won a couple world wars, you love the oil business. You're welcome. <laughs> so. and, and, and well, it, and so like climate related death, climate related death globally has dropped 90% in the last 80 years. Mm -hmm. Why? Because there's abundant, cheap energy. People don't die of thirst anymore in the U S like they used to. And that's because the oil and gas industry has brought, uh, inexpensive, uh, bountiful energy to the world's population. And, you know, you have these emerging populations going on in, you know, Vietnam and China and Africa and, and all of them need energy and, and we're providing it. So it's, it's good for, good for mankind. It's good for the planet. All right. Good stuff. I will put that link to the big rich in the show notes for anybody looking for it. Moving on to Daniel, Daniel McLaughlin. He is from Bloomberg new energy finance. We got somebody from Bloomberg writing in here, Mark. <laughs> yeah, that's we we we're getting more and more people that are in the industry paying attention to what we're doing. So that either means they're they're bored, <laughs> or or we're actually doing something useful. So you know, welcome aboard, Daniel. Yeah, it's awesome. All right, hi guys. My question today is about the cannibalization of rigs. There's been a good amount of articles written about this topic over the course of the price downturn. Do you see this as a potential problem to the North American shale producers scaling back up when prices return? As an add-on, do you see prices returning in such a gradual manner that rig cannibalization is not going to have much of an impact? Keep up the good work. Thanks, Daniel McLaughlin. Yeah, so Daniel, I would be curious if you're referencing all rigs, offshore rigs, or on land, because the answers are a little bit different. But your, your, your um, thought that the gradual return is not going to make rig cannibalization a big issue is spot on. We're not going to have a... Can you uh, define rig cannibalization for us real quick? Yeah, so they, they basically take a rig that's not productive for whatever reason, and they, they gut it, and they sell it for scrap, or they sell parts, and it's just, you know, they, they get rid of the rig. The rig comes out of the fleet. Um, and so what's, what's happening is when the price comes back, and you're right, Daniel, it'll come back gradually, when it starts making fiscal sense, it's actually going to do something you may not have thought of. It's actually going to spur the growth of the new rigs, higher horsepower, more mobile rigs, which are just more productive. Uh, you can drill faster and you get in production quicker. So what's going to happen to the drill fleet, both offshore and on land, is as the price comes back, you can see old rigs scrapped and you can see new rigs, which actually is a, a big cost to it, uh, being built, but they'll be much more effective in, in their drilling process. So that's, that's where that's going to go. Um, there is a whole sub-market in, uh, in older rigs out there, both offshore and on land. And a lot of those rigs get bought and moved to areas of the world that um, have lower energy requirements. And so they're not worried about higher horsepower rigs. So, you know, see China buys a lot of um, our older rigs because they're, they don't have the same requirements that we have here. Uh, but good question. Can you then also just talk through the the reality that rig counts are often misleading, especially the way that we're drilling, drilling holes now. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good point, James. So rig counts used to be a barometer of what's going on in the industry and it's not as good a barometer anymore for a bunch of reasons. So first thing, the fundamental thing is when you're using a drill rig, you're not in production. So you're that, the correlation between production and rig counts really not there. The other thing is in today's world, we use multiple rigs, so you may have, on a frack site, you may have three different rigs come out that site. Well, that's three rigs that are show uh, usage time and three rigs that are show downtime for one, one site, one pad. And so it's, it's, it's not as useful as it used to be, the whole rig count correlation. But then also you've got so many different innovative ways in drilling, the, in not only horizontals now, 
but you, you they'll drill eight wells from one from one pad yeah, in a be, spider almost right yeah so they'll 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 drill you know more than eight sometimes verticals and then they'll drill multiple horizontals off those verticals so you know the fundamentally drilling technology has changed which once again makes the tie in between drink uh, rig count production not as uh, valuable as it used to be yeah okay good stuff let's move on to matt hager he is attorney at law matthager.com and he is a natural resource attorney so let's see let's see what he has to say there mr um what is your major again <laughs> wildlife management <laughs> I love it. All right. Hey, Mark, uh, James, Mark, I'm a regular listener to your oil and gas podcast. I had a question that I am hoping you may have the answer to. I'm an attorney specializing in oil, gas, and coal. I graduated the Appalachian School of Law with an emphasis in natural resource law. In 2014, while I was attending law school and after I'd graduated, I worked for a title leasing company with a contract with a major operator continental resources in Kentucky, leasing a new unconventional formation called the Rogersville shale. I ran title along with 30 other title professionals. The company had hired in four counties. I noticed that the contracting company I worked for and the contracting companies for other oil and gas producers in the area had hired title abstractors that really did not know what they were doing. Kentucky title is unique. The construction of deeds terms are important when looking at title and if you are not familiar with title in the area, it can be really confusing. It, uh, I felt like these large companies were wasting $1,000 a, a, a day hiring an inefficient workforce. My question is, how do oil and gas companies award these bids to contracting companies? I have uh, scoured the internet for months looking for the answer, and any push in the right direction you could give would be appreciated. Thanks, guys, and keep on keeping on. And we will absolutely keep on keeping on, Matthew. Yeah, so you brought up something that um, is is actually extremely common, at least here in the U.S. And, and to answer your question, the way that the, um, the, the bids go out to contracting company still to this day is relationships. They know the guy. They know the contracting companies. The contracting companies have good relationships with the operators. And, and, and they may st still go through an RFP process. They may still go through a formal buy-in process, but it's those relationships. And that's slowly changing. But that's the reason you can't find it online because it's not online. <laughs> it's, in, it's in people's heads and in their relationships with other people's. And, and you're absolutely right. What happens is the contracting company will win a contract and then they'll staff up. And they really, at that point, or, it's kind of horrible to say, but they're really worried about their billable rate not the efficiency of their staff. So if they hire somebody that's an expert in Kentucky, well, he can get it done in an hour. If they hire somebody that's not an expert in Kentucky, he may take him six hours. Well, guess what? You build that company six hours instead of one. So that once again, that's slowly starting to change. I think technologies could change that. Um, there's several small startups out there that I've, I've been aware of um, that are actually looking to solve this problem, actually make sure that they have a flexible workforce of, of um, uh, lease attorneys that know that particular state's uh, uh, rules and regulations, and then be able to offer that online. But it's in its infancy. Um, I, you know, it's, it's probably been another 10 years before that becomes a little more mainstream. Talk to us about leasing for anybody that's, that's a novice. Yeah, so U.S. Is, is different than most, if not all, of the world, and it's actually a, in a good way. So you can actually, you as an individual, can own your mineral rights. So um, a, a good example is my house here. So I live in Sugarland, Texas. Um, um, my house... I don't own the mineral rights because of the developer that developed my whole neighborhood. He kept the mineral rights. So the mineral rights are not connected to the surface rights. 
So even though I own my house <laughs> and I own the property it's on and I pay property tax and everything else, I don't own the mineral rights. That developer kept that. And what he does or what he will do, if there's a need, if he gets approached by um, you know um, the right people, the right companies to explore for mineral rights in our neighborhood, he will then sell those mineral rights. And it's, and it's, it's called a lease. Um, and, and at that point, you know, it's, there's a time and there's a, a, a contract put together as far as how he gets paid and everything else. But um, he can actually then take – he literally can sell the mineral rights under my house to somebody else for a length of time. So that's how it works in the U.S. And the reason it's so unique is most of the world, the government owns the minerals in the ground. And so you don't get the, the growth of small independent producers that you have here in the U.S. And those small independent producers are the guys that do innovation. The guys that do R and D, the guy that come up with new technology, um, this whole shale revolution that that we went through a couple of years ago is not because of you know the big super majors it's from small independent companies just thinking about things differently. So once again, it's just good for everybody. Definitely good for everybody. And another option for people that that again might be new is the fact that you can not only lease your land to have someone come and you get an eighth or sixteenth or a twenty-fourth or whatever you're hopefully you're a good negotiator and you get better than a twenty-fourth, right? Um, but you can also outright sell the minerals and get a lump sum cash from from certain vendors as well. So Yeah, yeah, it's however that that contract's negotiated a bunch of different ways. It's you know what happens is both sides are trying to mitigate risk. So there's all kinds of solutions out there. Absolutely. All right, let's move over to Fraser Sloan. He is an associate at the Boston Consulting Group. Hi, Mark. Just wanted to connect and say that I really enjoy the podcast. Always good insight. I'm a big fan of the North American oil and gas industry and think that even amidst climate concerns, we are more responsible at developing our natural resources than under the nations. Wait, James, stop. Yeah, I, I got to stop right there. <laughs> he gets it, right? So, Fraser, thank you, thank you, thank you. You understand the reality, unlike most people in this country. So keep going. Any insight you can offer on the show regarding the U.S.-Canadian heavy, tight, crude, complementary would, dynamic would be valuable. I will be doing some work in Houston at some point with a strategy, uh, within strategy consulting, so I hope to do better understand. I hope to, gosh, I'm, I'm fumbling the ball here. Hope to better understand the cross-border dynamic and how that can fuel North American long-term strategy. Thanks, Frazier. A great, great, great question. So a I, don't, I don't totally understand this question, Mark. So exactly what is he asking? <laughs> so he's, he's wanting to understand the business drivers of the tight, heavy crude in Canada and, and how there's a need for it here in the U.S. And if you don't know what tight crude, uh, tight crude is, is the shale oil, right? Yeah, I've got the and heavy, it, tight crude. I don't understand the U.S.-Canadian dynamic. So that's, yeah, that's having to do with business, you're saying? Yeah, so we'll, we'll get into that in a second, but a lot of our audience may not know what tight is. And, and, and basically, that means the oil is attached <laughs> to the sandstone. you got to figure out a way to make it unattached. That's where the word tight comes from. So what happens is, in the U.S., we talked about this with one of the other, other questions just a minute ago. We have a need for heavy crude for our refineries. We don't produce heavy crude. Guess what Canada produces? Just that. Heavy crude. So that's the, the whole Keystone Pipeline thing, which was, is an infrastructure project, which became a political nightmare. What most people in the U.S. don't understand is we need that. We, we, we need heavy crude, bottom line. We can either buy it from the Middle East, which right now is not a, a very U.S.-friendly part of the world, although there's, there's countries there that are very U.S.-friendly. Uh, or we can buy it from our neighbors up north in Canada, right, who, who are very U.S.-friendly. Um, we have a choice. And in order to buy it from Canada, we need a way to get it down here. Right now, we're buying it from Canada. And it's being shipped by rail, which is harmful to the environment. It's dangerous. 
um, the Keystone Pipeline would have cleaned all that stuff up. So we need to buy that heavy crude so we can mix it with our light crude so that we can refine it. Canada doesn't really need the heavy crude. They have their own refineries that are set up for heavy crude, but they don't have the big need that we have here. So Canada's, the business drivers, Canada can produce this heavy crude, which we need. We can buy it from them, which then benefits the U.S. population because we can then mix it with our light crude and refine it so it keeps fuel prices low and keeps everything else low. Um, you know, we use the uh, gas that are, is almost like an afterthought from a lot of these sh shell wells in the U.S. to uh, produce electricity, which is also better for the environment. And then Canada benefits because they get the money, which they can use for their own country. So that's that's what he's talking about, and that's what's going on. The problem is um, politics. Um, you know, Keystone, the last little piece of Keystone, Keystone XL, didn't get completed. Uh, we'll see what happens when the next administration gets in office. But um, you know, long term wise, if if we can't figure out how to buy that Canadian crude effectively. That Canadian crude will be sold to somebody else, and then the Canada will lose out and will lose out. So, you know, this is one of those things that a lot of people don't understand that we need to have that partnership with Canada because it frees us from the partnership that we have with a lot of the heavy crude producers in the Middle East. Okay, I get it. How does that then translate into a strategy consulting situation? Um, if if so, if you're if you're looking to do strategy either for the Canadian producers or for the U.S. buyers, you need to figure out what's going to happen in the future so you can figure out what's the best use of your money. So if if we get um, a Republican candidate in office, the Keystone will probably be finished and it's done. <laughs> I mean, it's just done. Boom. If we don't, we need to look at um, you know how we continue to move this crude oil safely and effectively via rail from Canada here to the U.S. Are there other infrastructure projects we can build? Um, you know, are there other pipelines that we can maybe build on a rail terminal? So the the strategies can be different depending on the politics here in the U.S. and and quite frankly, also the politics in Canada. Um, they have some of the same environmental uh, uh, concerns. I shouldn't even say this. they have some same environmental activist issues that we have. There you go. So yeah, so it's um you know that that also plays into the politics of it. And once again, if you're a company, you need to figure out a strategy. You know how to make sure that you can still do business in whatever political environment that you're operating in. Yeah. So wait till November and you'll have a brand new strategy. <laughs> well, you know, James, that in itself is something that's important. I'm glad you brought that up. So every four years, companies have to rethink their strategy. We need to get away from that. And we've talked about this before, but we need to get our energy policy out of the hands of our politicians and into a hand of, of business people and scientists and experts so that companies don't have to do this every four years. Yeah, I just think about mission creep, but that's, that's oh, we could talk about that offline. I just see bureaucrat, bureaucrat, bureaucrat every time. No, 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 yeah, no, not bureaucrats, not government. That's the thing you want to stay away from. You don't want the government to do this. You want businessmen to do this. You know, just imagine if you put, um, you know, put Steve Jobs in front of in charge. I mean, he's passed away, but put somebody that understands business. It just would get fixed. Yeah, that's true. Okay, Sean Parker has a question, and here it is. After the 2008 financial crisis, a lot of the major investment banks reduced or removed themselves from prop trading, proprietary trading, or trading their own capital in several several areas, including commodities. Given this, have we always been a carbon abundant world? Have we always been in a carbon abundant world, but we're binded by the truth because of market manipulation and growth of BRICs nations? What is BRICs nations? BRICS. What are BRICS? <laughs> uh, BRICS is um, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, the emerging economies. Got it. I can't help but be reminded of how Goldman Sachs would store aluminum and make huge profits by manipulating the commodity prices. I believe that these 
that by these investment banks being forced to reduce prop trading and given the explosion in oil and gas in the U.S., we are now seeing what is the market corrected prices rather than outrageous $100 plus crude prices. Any insights? Uh, and also, in all seriousness, have you, Mark or James, considered writing a children's book on oil and gas? Why not get them started early? And who knows? The idea may take off. Thanks and great job uh, with the show and keep doing what you guys do best. Uh I, I, it's almost a little scary, you and I writing a children's book. <laughs> we have, well, we have a recommendation coming for that, so yeah, we, let's oh, let's right. deal with the question. <laughs> yes, so so basically, if if I understand the question, he's he's really Sean's really asking it. Do I do we think there was a bit of a conspiracy going on with um, proprietary trading? And and no, it's the oil and gas is the oil and gas industry globally is actually one of the few global free market. Um, commodities out there. And yes, there, there's some insider trading and yes, there's some market manipulation, but it's on a very, 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 very small scale. Um, the, the, the problem is the fact that it is a global free market and you have investors who make speculation. And so what happens is like anything else, you have the pendulum swing. You have um, um, people who firmly believe the price could go up. Uh, you have um, the uh, uh, shortage in supply because in, in the previous life it was there was an oversupply, so they, people quit producing. The shortage in supply plus the belief in traders that the price would go up fuels the growth of the price, and then that fuel, that capital, then gets invested. That money that's being made gets invested back into the industry to increase production because everybody thinks it's going to make a lot of money. Which eventually, as you go through time, you'll have an oversupply and the market swings the other way. And and it it it's done it four times in my lifetime. In another 10 or 15 years, it will do it again. Guess, it guess it. how long it's done it, Mark, since the oh, beginning of the yeah. industry, literally. Yeah, and, and every commodity is like that. You know, the, the oil and gas industry gets a lot of attention in the news about this downturn. But right now, globally, all of commodities are in a downturn. Steel, copper, aluminum. Uh, we're in a diesel glut right here in the U.S., and we're getting ready to enter into a gasoline glut for the exact same market drivers. So, no, there's no conspiracy there. Um, but you, you did – you did call out right the financial crisis of 2008 that that literally was because people were allowed to trade their own capital and that's just you know that's, and we've changed the rules about that here in the US it's just not something you want to have in our business process um but no there there's no um there, there's no conspiracy there's um you know this is just the market correcting itself which it will do again in the future and will, like James says it's always done it in the past and will always do it in the future and there is a historical there is a historical consensus among Americans to think in terms of conspiracy, though, because I hate to keep going back to Mr. Rockefeller, but people used to write him and accuse him of the same things that they accused the entire industry of today, which is fixing prices. And everyone believed that if, if he would only I mean, he got serious letters from serious people that were saying, if you would only set the price this morning at this, my life would be affected this way. And people don't understand the amount of scale that's involved in this industry. It's impossible for one person to be pulling all of the strings. There's no way it could ever work. Yeah, it's a human nature thing, James. It's um, and it's people love to believe in alternative conspiracy theories. I'm not quite sure why it's a human nature. If we have any psychologists or psychiatrists or, or conspiracy theorists out there, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we have them out there, maybe you could share with us why is why is it that people like to buy into conspiracy theories? And it's um, I I I don't get it, but Anyway, 
Yeah, a good but, point. But but yeah, it's it's that's how it is, and so it's it's this this industry is way too big for one person to control and manipulate. Even a group of people, even like, a country. Yeah, even a country. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you a country could have influence on things, but in terms of waking up and manipulating things the way that they want, and um, actually, I'm gonna shout out to Alan Gilmer. I'm gonna put it in the show notes as well. His um. You, you got us. We set the prices. It's pretty. It's a pretty good satirical post from back in the day. All right, let's move over to Oliver Arnold. He is from Project Box GmbH. He is the CEO. Hi, you two. Love the show. Keep keeps me entertained and informed at the same time. Here's my question: I'm looking for a company assisting with a pipeline pull for a small subsea oil pipeline. Can you help me and give me your opinion? of the skill set of ranking that you would use for vendor evaluation. Also, where is the best place to meet new vendors in order to broaden our vendor base? Thanks for the help and keep up the good work, Oliver. Let's do some vendor evaluation here, Mark. Yeah, this is a first for us. I've never been asked this before. And so, Oliver, let me just tell you, you know that business way better than I do, way better than I do. And so um, I, I don't, you know, first thing pops in my head is companies like uh, Technip, um, uh, FMC Technologies, um, um, One Sub C, uh, you know, uh, Cameron, but you're asking for a small sub C pipeline pull, and I don't really know. I just don't know any vendors that fit that. Um, and it, the the thing you're gonna run into, uh, Oliver, is that knowing that industry, that part of the industry, that sub C industry, it's probably the most risk adverse part of the oil and gas industry. It's the most old fashioned, if you will. Which means that you're not going to be able to go online and find any of these. They 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 may not even have websites. Um, so thing is, work your network. Um, ask other people that do what you do. Who would they uh, suggest? And how would you rank that vendor? Um, it, it 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 all depends on when you say rank. You know, do you want the best job or you want the cheapest job? Because you can't have both. Um, and that's one of the things, especially when people go to RFPs especially in the oil and gas industry, the procurement process tends to drive the cheapest job, which is not always the best thing for the company. So, you know, you need to evaluate what quality of work you have versus what you want to spend. And somebody find a, a vendor that's done that exact thing. Literally ask them, have you done X for X price? And if they can say yes, three, four, five, six, eight, ten times, you probably have a good vendor there. If they've never done it and they say they can do it, uh, be a little leery of that. It's really interesting. It wasn't until you repeated that the words popped out at me, small sub C. <laughs> it's just, yeah. they don't really match up. I'm not no, saying no, that it's a bad question. It's just the think about small and sub C, those, those don't really mesh. No, right. Those, those usually don't go together because sub C is expensive. And so only big companies have the capital and the, um, the entry point to the market to be able to do it. I mean, you look at the sub C manufacturers, just the cost of their tooling, just the tools they have to own to be able to build trees and, and blowout preventers and plets and manifolds and pipelines. Most companies can't afford the tools. So that's why there's not a lot of competition there. So, uh, you know, Oliver, good luck. Um, you know, I wish I could have helped you more. I just, I just don't know any off the top of my head, any small subsea, uh, you know, vendors that can do a pipeline pull for you. And if anybody's listening out there that does know, go to the, go to the show notes for this episode, which is triberocket.com forward slash TW80, TW80, triberocket.com forward slash TW80 and and help them out because we'd like to help as much as we can or throw it in the LinkedIn group wherever you think to. Yeah, and you know, let me I just realize he asked where's the best place to meet new vendors. So that's actually an easy one to answer. Pick any of the subsea expos or conferences. There this could be full of subsea vendors. Um OTC here in Houston every year, you probably have every 
sub C vendor in the world. That's what I was Houston. thinking as soon as yeah. I heard that. I was just go to OTC. Yeah. So so and and Oliver, if you go to OTC, let us know ahead of time. We're um we we basically camp out there and everybody knows <laughs> us. Um, you know, we we're we're looked at part of the press and you know so if, if you come let us know i can even tell you ahead of time where we're going to be camping out we'll be upstairs at the booth at fmc technologies we've <laughs> we've done it for so long they think we work there so um yeah if, if you go if you come to otc oliver let us know and if you need tickets um sign up for my newsletter i, I give free tickets to otc every year tribrocket.com forward slash events um all right we're gonna round things out not with a question but with a recommendation from chris kreps and i i apologize i i appreciate i should say chris you, you put the k-r-e-p-s the this the the i don't even know i was gonna sound smart for a second i was gonna say the whatever spelling all right roper technologies he's a group executive not a question thought this would be of interest Quote, Gary the Go-Kart Wind Blows is a children's book about oil and gas to offer a counter view to the liberal education agenda on the topic. I keep one on my desk at work. Unfortunately for Texas, with its news and expansion of wind energy, it's negative to wind. <laughs> so I will I will look that one up, Gary the Go-Kart, <laughs> and uh, we'll throw that in the show notes and y'all can... Y'all can uh, can debate below on on the merits of that but it's thank you very much yeah hey awesome idea chris um thanks for sending this our way we need more stuff like this so if anybody else out there knows more about children's books that talk about the truth of of, of the oil and gas industry let us know we, we'll we'll throw them on the oil and gas global network website um and james i don't know i don't know if you and i talked about this off the mic um but you know what's happening in texas right now speaking of wind energy go ahead we, pr we produce more wind energy than we know what to do with now and so the state is looking at spending the money to build infrastructure because Texas is not connected to the national grid because we're self-sufficient. We don't need the rest of the U.S. We don't need you. Yeah. They're looking at uh, spending the money on the infrastructure to bring this excess wind energy we generate to the rest of the states and sell it. How um, cool is that? How cool is we Not only we number one wind energy, we have so much that we don't know what to do with it. Now we're going to sell it to the rest of the country and make I, some money. I'm such a Texan already that I'm like, but we got to give up our independence. No, 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 no. You don't understand. We're not going to be no, connected to the it. grid. Yeah. It's going to be one way. They're going to be dependent on us. Nice. Oh, wait. I, I, uh, I, I said that was the last one. Let me actually I almost forgot Christian. Let's not forget Christian Ishak. He is a student. We can't forget our students. Hey, I just started uh, watching. So that must be from you, Mark. <laughs> You're always saying watching. I just started watching your podcast to learn about the oil and gas industry. Maybe he watches on YouTube. There you go. Um, I'm pursuing an internship in investment banking, oil and gas for the summer 2017. When listening to your uh, podcast, there's some terms and topics I don't follow because I'm new to the field. Is there a good podcast you've made or recommend that gives a good overview of the industry jargon and other essential information? If not, I think it would be a great idea to create a podcast for new listeners that gives a good rundown of the industry and information needed to follow your other podcasts. I look forward to hearing back from you. Thanks, Christian. I thought I was breaking it down, Mark. Apparently I'm too, in, I, I'm, I'm become too educated. Yeah. So if we have other listeners out there that think this is a good idea, like they, they'd want a, an introduction to oil and gas podcast, let us know. We're open for anything that makes sense. Uh, but Christian, I can tell you the easiest thing to do. Go to my website, modalpoint.com, go to learn about oil and gas. There's a whole bunch of resources there. Uh, one of which is an app from Slumberjay that um, literally you can type in any oil and gas acronym or word and it tells you what the yeah, definition is. Yeah, the Slumberjay is. glossary is what I was yeah. going to – yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and then there's – I have a bunch of books listed there and there's some videos there. Um, and it's, it's all to help people learn about the oil and gas industry. So just uh, go to my website. Go check it out. Everything you need is there. If we can help you, uh, you know, uh, 
reply back in the show notes of this episode. And you know, if there's something you don't know, let us know and I'll be happy to help you. Also, go join the LinkedIn group. You're sitting there with what are we up to, James? 1300, 1400? Time, man. We're, I'm, I'm losing track already. Yeah. So, anyway, you're there with a whole bunch of your friends, a whole bunch of people on gas industry who will be happy to answer your questions, um, who work in the industry, so know what they're talking about. I would like so, to see a lot more of that in the LinkedIn group. Now that you say that, that would be great. Yeah. yeah. And that's in the LinkedIn group, Christian, by the way, is, is um, Oil and Gas Global Network. OGGN. And then also I will throw in there seven free resources for newbies in oil and gas. It is the the blog post I wrote back in the day because I was so frustrated not being able to find good resources when I started in, in goodness how things have changed in only the since 2010. So, all right, over to the weekly onion, your favorite part, Mark. Dad thinks son has what it takes to become embittered alcoholic minor league journeyman. Is that the future for your son? Anyway, <laughs> Bulwark edition, we have a winner. Who is our Bulwark winner this week? Congratulations, Eric Marshall, VP of Completions and Operations at Spire Oil and Gas. You have won the Bulwark two-tone base layer, which is in super high demand. Pow. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the fashion accessory of 2016. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are really going, going for it on this one. Yeah, and so not only is it the fashion accessory in oil and gas right now, but it's also FR clothing, flame-resistant clothing. Bulwark is the world's leader in FR clothing. If you or your crew or your company have a need for a fashion accessory that's also FR, <laughs> go check Bulwark out. Um, and you also get a chance to win one of these really nifty shirts. So, Eric, uh, free consulting here. Offline, hit me up. Because when you Google Spire Oil and Gas – your website is not first. We got we to do something about oh, that. Oh, Eric, we need to fix that. Yeah, <laughs> we shout gotta, to James. We got to do something about that, man. It's a, yeah. You, you got you to rank first for your own, for your own um, t- uh, term there. But yeah, all and, right, go ahead. And if, and if anybody else wants to win one of these really cool FR two-tone base layers from Bulwark, it's really simple. You go to bulwark.com forward slash podcast. That's B-U-L-W-A-R-K.com forward slash podcast. Throw your info in there and we pull one lucky winner a week. Yes, sir. And moving on to the events on deck, we have, as we talked about TIBCO, it's happening next next week, September 7th and 8th. We will be there. And it, this isn't the idiot in oil and gas. <laughs> IOT? What, what did you say earlier? Um, no, tell us about IOT and oil and gas. Yeah, so this is the Internet of Things, IOT and oil and gas. This is September 14th and 15th. This conference, James, has grown 50%. This is their second year, 50%, which tells me the oil and gas industry has a huge interest in how technology, specifically Internet of Things, can help their business. Good on them um, for using the correct term. Yeah, and Thank I'll you. be there. Um, I'll be actually speaking there. If, uh, you, if you're in the oil and gas industry, I don't care what you do. You need to go to this thing uh, because technology is the next big wave in oil and gas. And it's going to affect you, your business regardless of what you do in oil and gas. It's not just an IT thing. right? It's a business driver. So um, go check the conference out September 14th. Uh, if you go, hit me up on Twitter. I'd love to connect. All right. Yeah, I think um, I might be around for that. We'll see. We'll, we'll see what happens. I've got some traveling to do toward the end of the end of the month. We'll talk about that later. All right. First Friday Q&A. If you missed your chance to get your question in today, then, you know, you've got another chance. Go and make amends for your errors. I'm sorry. Uh, Tribrocket.com forward slash QA. Everybody loves this. Everybody loves it, Mark. Yeah, it's um, I get a lot of positive feedback from our audience. So if you have any questions about the industry, we and this, you know, every month we get really, really high quality questions. So if you have any questions about anything in the industry, reach out, let us know. If you want extra brownie points, uh, record an audio uh, on your smartphones, uh, text it or email it to James. He loves to get audio questions. I love it. I love it because I get to do more production, which is always fun. <laughs> All right. We got reviews. Great stuff from Crude King. 
Good on you, Crew King. Yeah, we got five stars from him. This podcast is great to get exposure and knowledge in the industry. The conversation topics are relevant, impactful, and entertaining. Boom. Two sentences. That's all it takes, Mark. Two sentences. But here's... We'll we'll take two words. Say very good. (laughs) I mean, we just need the reviews. Or very bad. One star. I don't care. I really don't care. Just give us a review. But here's here's the thing. We've often talked about, and I didn't talk to you about this off the mic, but... We often talk about the fact that it really helps with our search engine rankings. But I've seen something happen in person over and over again. I want to bring up this term. It's called social proof. And that has to do with when you write something online or produce a blog or a video or anything like that. You always put your social share buttons on the side, preferably, or at the bottom of the post, wherever you're going to put them. But float them on the side. Just follow me on that one. Sumo Me plugin is free. But the thing is that when someone comes to a blog post that says it's been shared 379 times, how much more likely you think that people are going to be to read to the bottom of it, right? Ah, good point. I never thought about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good well, stuff. No, but I've seen this. I've seen this. Actually, um, shout out to Jesse, Jesse Heinge, or Henge from, um, from um, Purple Land Management because we ran into each other. We've known each other for quite a while now, but we ran each other at, at NAEP. And he, he opened it up and he goes, gosh, 117 revives. Wow. You know, and that's this. It helps a lot, too, for people that first find it that are looking for quality content. It helps to drive that behavior in terms of people going ahead, clicking on and listening. So not only yeah, for that, search engine rankings. Yeah, no, no, I get it. Right. Because it's it's become so easy for people to do podcasts. that unfortunately, there's a bunch of crap out there and it's hard. I mean, I struggle with it. it's hard to find quality podcasts. So I get it. Right. There's another reason for you to leave a review. It's to help your fellow searchers figure out that this is worth listening to. Yeah. I I, just, I told you I was look, looking at a bunch of radio stuff this morning. Man, I was looking at there is there is some there's some damage on the on the side of the road out there in terms of oil and gas podcast that I've now heard about that didn't make it past episode 17. And I'm like, man, once you make it to 17, it seems like you're going to keep going. But unfortunately yeah, not. Thank you. Unfortunately not. All right. So that's tribrocket.com forward slash TW reviews. Take you straight to the iTunes store. And then we've got the LinkedIn group. We've talked about that extensively. We don't need to plug it anymore. Tribrocket.com forward slash LinkedIn. Go and join the group. And I'm going to give it over to you, Mark, so that we've talked about the show notes. Tell us about show notes and, and how they help. Yeah. So if you're listening to the show and you're curious about anything we've said, any of the links, any of the resources, it's all in one place. James takes the time to stick it in the show notes. It doesn't, it, it, it's not, I take the time, Mark. Yeah. yeah. So you can go to the show notes for this episode and find everything. And not only can you go to the show notes to find everything for this episode, for every episode. So in this case, it's a, a tribrocket.com forward slash TW80. So tribrocket.com forward slash TW80. Anything you want to know about this episode is there. And it's just a click away instead of you having to write notes or, or rewind or, or do whatever. So um, very simple format, tryrocket.com forward slash TW80 will bring you right to the show notes for this episode. And every other episode has its own page. Right? Yeah, so just was, start going backwards, 79, 78, yeah. 77. Yeah. So just, just a quick, easy way for you to get the info you need. All right. And if you want to share the show, tribrocket.com forward slash share all I takes you to LinkedIn forward slash share FB for Facebook and forward slash share TW. Or Twitter, you got anything else, Mark? Yeah, actually, I do. So, uh, if if you're an organization or a school or trade association or a conference or you know a book club, and you'd like James and I to come talk, reach out to us, and and we'd love to see, we'd love to share details with you. You know, we love getting on the road. We love coming and talking in front of groups. Um, you know, if you, if you have a sales organization, if you have a marketing convention, whatever, let James and I know. 
Um, and then, like I said, just reach out to us and then we'd love to talk about it. We'd love to talk about it. All right, let's go, Mark. I know you have some things to do, as do I. Yep. So folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. training myself how to speak on a mic so i don't know do, i don't do those yeah, right yeah, yeah. i do my p's and b's very softly and i do it now unintentionally when i go order starbucks coffee at the drive through and yesterday when i ordered coffee when i got to the window the young man that was giving me uh, was getting my coffee goes do you do radio he goes you have that radio voice it's like that's so <laughs> it's so funny because what happened i used to probably didn't and i've kind of unintentionally trained myself and now the guy at starbucks <laughs> asks me if I, have a, I do a radio show isn't that funny can i have a double calf cappuccino please <laughs> well i don't please. i don't uh, yeah, please right 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 yeah it's, just, it's funny <laughs> that's awesome